be over in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. I can already see the emails being written immediately uh, from your phones, and that's all right. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. We cannot see the whole scope of God's work. So today we are talking about uh, hell. We've been going through this series uh, called Timeless. It's about eternity. It's about what happens after the afterlife, what comes next. It's, it's a question that we have. I've never gotten more questions than I have on this sermon series. And so in two weeks we're doing a question and answer uh, message where people have already sent me questions. I'm going to put a link this week in the email uh, that I can answer your questions from the Bible uh, about this entire subject of eternity, afterlife, destiny, all those kinds of things. And uh, we're going to go through almost like a frequently asked questions message. And uh, it's, it's going to be great because I've had a whole ton of like text message like, what did you actually mean by this? And so let's, but let's not say what I mean by it. Let's look at the Bible. Let's look at what the Bible has to say about these things. And we don't talk about this issue a lot because, number one, we're afraid it's going to make people afraid. We don't touch this issue or this doctrine because we leave it in the back closet because, you know, that's like not how we get more people to come. Or you're on the other side of the fence. You're like, how come we don't talk about hell more? Because you have a sick desire to see people burn in eternal damnation. And the reason we don't talk about it more is because you cannot contain your joy about it. And so what I want to challenge all of us today is in your YouVersion Bible app, if you don't have it, download it right now. I put like notes for you. I put extra detailed notes. I'm going to make those available in our weekly email. Uh, some of this stuff, I don't have time to go through every single Bible verse on hell, uh, and you'll find out why in a moment, uh, but I have put extra notes for you on the YouVersion app. You just need to make sure that you save it. So you go to YouVersion Bible app, hit the bottom, uh, in the bottom right-hand corner, there's three dots. The more button, you hit events, you'll see Engage City Church, all of your notes for today are there along with a whole bunch of extra Bible verses to give you some context for what I'm talking about. What I've included in the notes is a first century Jewish worldview of hell and, and why I believe Jesus affirms that uh, teaching and understanding. Uh, so there's just some extra stuff in there for you. I've also included a list of books if you want to know more, a whole list of books and stuff that I actually use in preparing for this message. I can tell you I have, uh, if I'm being really, really honest, uh, well, I'm, I'm always really honest, but if I'm being even more honest, uh, I have never carried more weight over a message than I have this very message today because we need to get it right and we have to understand it properly in the light of Scripture. And what I know is our human tendency is that when we read the Bible, we read it in light of how we want it to appear. You're like, I don't do that. Okay. You're lying to yourself. We all do that. We all have a certain slant. It's a combination of our background, where we come from. Uh, Christian or not Christian say, well, I, I, I've never come to church before. I, I'm new. I'm like, I, you know, uh, I don't have any background. No, you do. You have a bias towards what you already know and understand. So we have to understand that as we read each one of these portions of Scripture, our heart, or well, more of our mind, is going to pull us back to our own understanding. But we need to just take a moment. We're going to pray in a second. We're just going to ask the Lord to open the eyes of our understanding 
so that we can get the full wisdom of the knowledge of God on this matter. Wow, it is hot in here. My, wow, my goodness. All right, let's pray together, and then we'll get into this. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. Okay, great, that makes me feel better. Dear Jesus, I'm thankful that you're here. Lord, may our eyes and our minds and our hearts be open to your word. God, let us look at it not with our own ideas, but let us look at it the way that you intended it so that we can fully understand what you want us to get out of your word and this doctrine which to some seems scary and to others seems amazing. Jesus, please help us to understand your heart in all of this. And everybody said... Amen. Now, uh, just before I jump into scripture, uh, does anyone ever get that feeling that the God in, in the Old Testament is angry and New Testament Jesus is really a nice guy? Anyone get that idea? You're like, man, that Old Testament guy, he is scary. Like, he just, like, takes people out, like warrior people. Now, some people really connect to that idea, uh, the Old Testament. Let's just machine gun preacher it, you know? Uh, but we got this general idea that the God of wrath is in the Old Testament and the God of niceness is in the New Testament. But the reality is when we study scripture, we just find that that, that nice, gentle, calm Jesus, that's not true. It's just what we like to read. See, we don't get a clear and defined picture until we get to Jesus. We don't get a clear and defined picture of hell until we get to Jesus. We don't. We don't understand. If you were to only read the Old Testament, you wouldn't, dis- you wouldn't find what you find until you get to the New Testament. You're like, what? but Jesus is so nice. Jesus is nice. He's amazing. He's incredible. He's unbelievable. But it doesn't change the fact that 13% of Jesus' teaching and half of his parables were about hell, judgment, punishment, and the wrath of God. 13% of his teaching and over half of his parables had to do with hell, wrath, punishment and judgment. You're like, oh my goodness, he is not a nice man, is he? He is, his beard is not what I thought it was. It's way more prickly now. So we, we try and wrap our minds around what hell is. Uh, uh, an early theologian origin who's basically thought of as, as a, a heretic for most of his life until recently an author brought his ideas back. Uh, He thinks that hell is is this kind of refining place like detention where you go for uh, like basically a a calming corner timeout where you experience a little bit of punishment and you come back and Jesus saves everybody. If you've ever seen the painting Dante's Inferno, you know, throughout the century we've been trying to wrap our minds around this idea of hell. Dante uh, conceived that, that hell was actually nine layers deep. If you see the painting, it's absolutely terrifying or awesome. He, he contemplated the idea of people getting bitten by snakes, tortured by beasts, uh, showered on with ice rain, pelts. This is all in different layers. And another one, you just, like, it's like mudding to another level. You were just dipped and stuck in pools of excrement. That was Dante's interpretation of what hell looked like. ACDC, as we heard, they pontificate that hell is the place where all of our friends are. It's a great place to hang out because I'm on the way. And so all throughout time, we've tried to figure out what exactly does it look like. C.S. Lewis, kind of like the beacon of all Christian literary hope, defines hell as this dark, gloomy city where a being just floats 
into non-entity. You just slowly stop existing. So how do we understand what the Bible says? Well, we have to go to the Bible. I want to give you an example of some of the times that Jesus talked about hell. This is not a conclusive list, but it is a short list, and you will find some more scripture in your notes today. Matthew 25, for example, then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into his eternal life. Matthew 8, verse 12, but some will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9, 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand uh, than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. Oh, that sounds delightful. So weeping, gnashing of teeth, fire, these are all pictures. This is all imagery that is used. Uh, you, you might be familiar with uh, the eternal lake of fire, that, that concept, what comes later in Revelation. There's, there's this idea or this picture that we start forming in our minds about hell. But we, it's really hard for us in our 21st century worldview to wrap our, our minds around a loving God who would send somebody to hell. It just, it doesn't. It doesn't pass the smell test. It doesn't seem right. We, 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 we try to put our, hand, our minds around it, which is maybe why we don't talk about this, because we're like, let's just not talk about this one. Jesus is awesome. What about hell? But then don't worry about it. No, maybe you should worry about it a little bit more. Because this is, this is hard for us to wrap our minds around. And so what we, what we say is, you know, I, you, know, you might have heard this even. You know, I, I conceive of a God who just loves me regardless, and he didn't need any atoning sacrifice, he didn't need to make a sacrifice, he didn't need Jesus to come, he didn't need anyone to die for me, he just, he just loves me enough, and he just loves me the way that I live, loves me the way I am, that eventually we're all just going to end up together in heaven. Okay, that's an interesting worldview, but what we end up, if you start playing out that logic, is with a God who is disconnected. We end up with a God who is, is at an arm's length because why does that God even care at all? If you can just do whatever you want, say whatever you want. If he doesn't really care about your development. See, the, the marker of Jesus, the marker of God is that not only does he love you, but he loves you enough not to leave you where you are, that he calls you forward into a great hope and a brighter future, and he has a destiny, a plan, and a purpose for your life, and he's drawing you out of yourself into something better. A hallmark of that logic is a God who loves you enough to just leave you in your own own mess that's how we play it out oh no but he loves me enough i can just do whatever i want we'll get to that in a moment so if you want to get rid of hell from christianity if you want to get rid of hell in the bible then it's very simple you just have to get rid of jesus if you want to get rid of hell it's simple you just have to get rid of Jesus. It is absolutely true that God is love, compassionate, merciful, long-suffering. We find that in 1 John 4, verse 8, Psalm 103, verse 8. But he is also just and moral and a purely good being whose decisions are not based on modern sentiment. I can't read it today. 
sentimentality. Because God is a perfect, uh, perfect judge. His justice is measured and perfect. Far different from the judgment that we as human beings are able to give. And far different from what we have experienced often in this life. So as we wrap our minds around this idea of hell, let's just make it very clear. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through the Son, through Jesus. So what that means is that the only way to the new heaven, the new earth, the afterlife, the eternal, <laughs> eternal glory, the only way that you can move that direction is if you come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What Jesus Christ did is he went to the cross 2,000 years ago and he died for us. And he didn't just die for the good parts of us. He died for the worst parts of us. He died for the sins of the entire world. The weight of the entire world was upon his shoulder. And he went to the cross so that you and I could have a pathway to come to Jesus. Because though we're sinners, though we've made mistakes, though we are imperfect, every time God looks at us, he doesn't look at us through the the lens of us as a sinner. He looks at us through what Jesus did. And he says, oh, the price has been paid for you. Why don't you come on in and you can come freely and you can come before me. And we love that part. The part about Jesus being the only way is that if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, a real active living alive relationship with Jesus, then you are ultimately choosing to not be with God. And so your choice on earth is honored by God the eternal father and carries on into eternity. read some more Bible. Matthew 27, Jesus is on the cross. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice in a Hebrew phrase that I'm not going to say, Aramaic actually, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? On a cross, Jesus hanging with his last breath, my God, my God. Why have you abandoned me? Some translations say, why have you forsaken me? What was Jesus experiencing in this moment? We know that he was experiencing, in the midst of dying, one of the most inhumane deaths in human history, which was soon after outlawed. We know that he's experiencing a death that is far worse than any electric chair or lethal injection. And in his last breath, he utters these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For in a moment, fulfilling the prophecy in Psalm 22, verse 1, Jesus lives with the weight of our sin, the obligations of our mistake, collectively. I mean, as if mine weren't enough. As if Sebastian's were not enough. That was a heavy load. It's a joke. It's fine. You don't need to laugh. It's because he's tall. It's not because of his sin. He felt the sting of the absence of the father. The breakdown of relationship as Stuart Town and the songwriter Pens, the father turns 
his face away. And in that moment, Jesus experiences what could only be described a feeling that is as close to hell on earth as possible. Where he bore the weight of the sins of the world and the Father withdrew. A few weeks ago, we looked at what happened in Genesis, Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. We, we learned our time was straight uh, a couple weeks ago was that when our relationship with God breaks down, everything else breaks down around us. So imagine this for a moment, that Jesus who existed with God the Father before the earth began with no beginning, and who will exist with Him into the future for eternity, for that moment was without the only presence that He has known His entire life. For in that moment, the weight of the world was upon him. The father turns his face away and he feels this sting of separation and he feels the isolation and the loneliness that many of us have become familiar with. And he is crushed under the weight of that loneliness. You say, now, I, what are you, why are you talking about this? I'm talking about this because... When we think about hell, we think about a man in a red suit running around with horns and big flames and big fire. And the Bible teaches about fire. It talks about weeping. It talks about gnashing of teeth. It talks about all of those things, but those things are all metaphors. You're saying, are you telling me that, that, that all of that language in Scripture is not painting a picture? No, it's painting a picture. The only thing that we know about Scripture, though, is that when it begins to paint a picture for us, that it is way more than we could have ever asked, hoped, dreamed, or imagined. That it is so much more. That when it's on the good side, it is so much more than we could even wrap our minds around. So what we have to understand is when God paints this picture, that it is also so much more than we could have asked, hoped, dreamed, or imagined towards the negative. And no, maybe there's not actual teeth gnashing. Or maybe there is. Jesus paints a very vivid picture in Luke chapter 16 in a parable. I want to break this down for a moment. Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple. Anyone wearing purple today? In fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Now this is a parable. This is a uh, Jesus telling a story, painting a picture. I believe if Jesus was to come back today and Jesus was to lock the earth on his time, and I believe that Jesus would be a filmmaker because what Jesus did was tell stories to, to educate the masses. I believe in this day and age, this would be a mini movie or a full movie because it's crazy. As Lazarus, this is also not specifically Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead. This is Jesus looking in the crowd like I do and saying, you know who's a terrible person? Seth. It's just, he's just making an illustration. He's just making an illustration. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Just to get a picture. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And his soul went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons have father. Anyways, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. 
But Abraham said to him, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you're in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm. There's a big separation separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. And the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. The scripture, that's what he's talking about. The scripture has warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, nope. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to scripture. They won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Let's leave it there. So this is, a, this is an, a little bit of an intense picture. Before we can fully understand the moment that happens in there, I want to talk about a scriptural con, uh, concept under, known as common grace. We live in the common grace of God. It's il illustrated here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. We are living in a world created by the master craftsman, spoken into existence. Remember, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, and God created all things through him, for him, and by him. So Jesus spoke, and the world came into existence. She's like, I thought God created the earth. He did through Jesus. So Jesus creates this incredible world, and in that moment where Eve eats the mango, or avocado maybe, I don't know, so delicious on toast. It was incredible. Everything falls apart. Everything falls apart. And yet we still continue to live in the goodness of God. The sun rises. His creation didn't stop. It continues every day. The sun rises. It falls and the moon rises and the world spins and the universe spins and rotates and there's stars in the sky and the universe continues to function but we have to remember that the universe is a function of the creation of Jesus that we live in the grace of God every single day that we wake up and we live on this thing we, we live in, in the created grace of God we are tasting little bits foreshadows of what lies ahead for us in a new heaven and a new earth which is so much better than we could ever ask hope dream or imagine and so what we live in right now is but a pale comparison to what lies ahead just on the other side. What God originally intended for us. But even though we made a mistake, God put forth his common grace. He says, this, you will live in this earth, in this creation, at my pleasure. And you will live and you will breathe. We have to... Understand that if God is the life-giving source of everything in the universe, of everything good that we experience in life, then, then we know that God is the source of all joy and pleasure, all laughter, all art, all music, all food, sex, water, everything that is good. <laughs> comes from God. So the question is then, what are we left with when his presence and his grace is removed? Every day we live in the common grace of Jesus. What are we left with when that common grace is removed? Even that babbling brook, that stream, the filthy mess of a North Saskatchewan. Just kidding. It's beautiful. You just don't go in accidental beach because the E. coli is going to kill you. But um, 
not false, read the reports. Uh, you have access. So the rich man is in a place of torment, a place separated from the presence of God, separated from the goodness of God, which means he's in a place without the common grace. So if all of the good things that come from God in this earth are only present when he is present, when you are without God, what do you have? So the most striking thing about this parable is not that he cries out and he asks Lazarus, the poor man who he let his dog lick his open source to dip his finger into a pool of water and drop it so that his tongue could get some refreshment. The most startling thing is that there was no pool of water. There was no refreshment for Lazarus to dip his finger into to even refresh that man because there is no common grace. There is no presence of God. There is no goodness of God. There is no rest and there is no refreshing when you are separated from God because all those things come from God himself. That's what's more staggering, the fact that there's a separation. But even if Lazarus could get to the other side, there would be no pool for him to dip his finger into to give the man a drink of water. Now, that sounds terrible. That sounds tragic. It sounds that way because it is. And that's why. It is with fear and trembling we must contemplate these scriptures. Because what we are now coming into the knowledge of is that there is a distinct separation. A life with God or without God. The even scarier part is that it could be said that, that hell is the outworking of our choice to experience total autonomy from God. I'm going to say that one more time. Hell could be understood as the outworking of our choice to experience total autonomy from God. Here's what I mean by that. Actually, I'm going to make it really personal. I was out to lunch yesterday with friends. And they're always interested in my work. And uh, he ended up in this conversation, and he, he started saying something along the lines of, you know, if I go to hell, it's okay. I'm a good person. I've done what I can do, and uh, it, it, it's fine. And I'm sitting here in the midst, like, I have stacks of books on my kitchen table. Like, I'm in the depths of this thing. I'm like, it is not fine, man. Like, it is not okay. Even though society is portrayed as the party place, remember I said earlier, heaven is the place that everyone wants to go to, but where no one wants to hang out. Hell is the place that nobody wants to go to, but where everyone wants to hang out. It's like, that's what we've decided hell is. Like, clearly it's going to be a, par a party down there. Well, no, because relationship can't even exist because we are created in the image of God. He modeled relationship after himself, the triune God, God, Father, Holy Spirit. So you think you're going to be down there with friends, but relationship doesn't exist. Therefore, your friends and your relationships cannot even exist. There is no common grace for relationship to exist because it does not function when God is not present. 
So therefore, when you go to hell, you don't go to a party. You go to loneliness and isolation. What happens to people when they get put in the hole? They start going crazy in the hole in prison. Why? Because you're alone and you do crazy things up in here. They're having a party, though, in the back. That's what heaven's like, the kids. We're on the other side, just silent. Your face is just like hell is here. Uh, you also hate me right now, and that's fine. That's fine. We just have to wrap our minds around this concept that, that we have this knowledge, this life-giving knowledge that we, we, we know people who, who just want to go their own way. And we go, how could God send them there? Did God send them there or did he allow them to make their choice? Yes, he allowed them to make their choice. I'm going to have to talk to Julia about that classroom back there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> we need all the help we can get. Um, and so we go, how could God send them there? And yet at the heart of our understanding of God is that he gives us this free will choice to come to himself. That's what we love about God, that he doesn't force himself on us. That he says, come to me, all who weary. He doesn't say, I'm going to come to you. He says, I will meet you, but you need to step, take a step towards me. Invite me into your life. Come on this pathway. Come and invite me. We believe in this free will choice of Jesus. And if we believe in the free will choice of Jesus, then we believe that our free will extends even into the next life. If you are good, if you, I'm a good person, I'm nice, it's fine. I'm okay, I, I'm okay with going to hell, it's fine, it's, it's all right. I'm a good person, I've done good things, I just don't need God. I don't need to exalt anyone higher. I don't need to lift him up, I'm good. I want to be in charge, I like to control my destiny. I like, you know, I just feel like I can't be constrained by those kinds of things. Well then guess what, when God <laughs> takes off the limits and he honors your choice, are you really okay with it in that moment? Hell exposes the lie that we've told ourselves since the garden that we don't need God. <laughs> it is the ultimate outworking. Let's just look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he's being patient. He's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. This is the heartbeat of God, but wants everyone to repent. Verse 11, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. God isn't like, I just want Jesus to come back now. Jesus is like, I'd love to come back now, but I'm being patient because I have a heart and I have a desire to see this world come into this life and they need to understand that they're living in this grace and that they, they, they need me and he turns to us and he says do you remember those words that I uttered to you when I came back and I was leaving you these words and I said guess what guys go out into all the world and make disciples and teach them anytime we talk about hell we get sidetracked by the idea of pain but this morning, I hope to call our attention to our responsibility as believers. Where we need to stop explaining away hell, as Francis Chan says. 
and start proclaiming God's solution to it. That's the hope. Like, this is not hopeful. No, this is hopeful. You have an answer. You have the solution. You carry it in you. If it's good enough for you, then it's good enough for them. We have a hope. His name is Jesus. He doesn't want you to go there. In fact, he is patiently waiting, holding, saying, hold on, guys. Hold. They're like, Jesus, this is having angels talking. Let's just go down there. It's going to be awesome. New heavens. North. He's like, hold on. They're about to get it. The church is about to do it. The church in Spurs Grove is about to come active and alive and realize that hell is a real place and a real destination. And it shouldn't make us excited. It should break our hearts. And it should drive us to this passionate conviction that says, I need to let you know that if you ask God to to just go away, that he's going to honor that request in this life and in the next. I can't believe he's sending you there. No, no, you're sending you there. And we're going to do everything in our power, short of sin, to let people know that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the life, He is truth, He is hope, He is healing, He is what's beyond, He is the answer, He is the solution to hell. And we're also going to let them to know that Jesus is a free will choice, but so is hell. So is hell. So yes, I will preach hell. And I will preach the wrath of God. But every time we preach those things, the lens and the light comes right back onto us. Because Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. So stop rejoicing in somebody burning. And start weeping over those who are still lost. This past weekend, last weekend, Desiree and I went to uh, Niagara Falls to be part of an ordination service uh, for CFCM, our national organization. Got to ordain my friend Alex, Alex Mills, which is an honor and a privilege. And our church, I want to say thank you for praying. For those of you who remember, uh, Alex's wife, Rebecca, was in the Philippines and had dengue fever, and it was a really rough situation. She was going to miss it. Uh, God came through amazing uh, doctors. Uh, She made it home with like four days to spare, favor with the airlines. Great. Thank you for praying. But as I was on the way to Ontario, I watched uh, this movie, Hacksaw Ridge. Anyone seen Hacksaw Ridge? If you haven't, it's on Netflix. It's free. Go watch it. Uh, Not with children. I was going to show a clip and Desiree's like, you cannot do that. I'm like, okay. People's heads getting blown off is just a fact of war. And it's this medic, and he's a conscientious objector. He refuses to fight, but he serves as a medic. And everyone thinks he's a coward, but I don't, uh, spoiler alert, (laughs) he's not. And he's 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 a believer. And he, everyone else is abandoned the battlefield except for the one medic, and there's wounded all across the field. And he starts praying this one prayer, says, Jesus... Please help me save just one more. And he runs into the battlefield and starts grabbing these soldiers, triaging them and dragging them back. Then he realizes he's alone and he has to figure out a way to get them down off this cliff. And every time he succeeds with one, he lays back in exhaustion and sweat and filth and clinging to life. He he got hit. He He was shot. And he just says, Jesus... Please help me to get just one more. 
and you can, uh, you can figure out what happens. Jesus, just one more. Jesus, just one more. Jesus, just one more. Jesus, just one more. And he gets these men down out of danger into triage, into medical care. Just one more. And he turns the tide on that battle. He even starts sending the enemy down. He says, Jesus, just one more. Jesus, just one more. Church, we need to have a mentality of not... Oh, man, please go to hell. Just get out of here. Get out of my life. You're going to go and burn in hell. No, our mentality is Jesus, just one more. Jesus, come on, stand to your feet, church. Jesus, just one more. Come on, why don't we stand to our feet? Jesus, just one more. Man, my neighbor, Jesus, just one more. My coworker, Jesus, just one more. Jesus, the internet trolls who are attacking me all week long over this message. Just one more. Just one more. Jesus, give us the courage to be the people who pray and say just one more.